Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up this hour, we'll visit a cemetery and hear from those who work there. The groundskeepers notice when young people are buried, and they've seen more of that due to gun violence. We'll talk with a professor who has helped create a database to track deadly use of force by police in Illinois. Also, a conversation with U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth about issues ranging from the national debt limit to national security. New water rules are being challenged at the federal level. The decision could have an impact on farmers and the environment. Scientists are studying the Illinois River Basin from above. We'll hear more on that. We also have a report on a program bringing virtual reality to the classroom. And we'll talk with participants of a polar plunge into Lake Michigan. Those stories and more coming up on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency recently released new rules regarding the waters of the United States that decides which bodies of water fall under federal protection. But a case the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to rule on soon throws those rules into question and could mean less protection for wetlands. For Harvest Public Media and the Mississippi River Basin Ag and Water Desk, Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco reports on what the Sackett versus EPA case may mean for wetlands in the Midwest and beyond. Doug Blodgett is walking up the remnants of the old levee at the Nature Conservancy's Emiquan Preserve in central Illinois. Twenty years ago, before the Conservancy took over the nearly 7,000 acres, it was corn and soybean fields. The restoration reconnected the floodplains to the Illinois River, and Blodgett recalls the day he realized the migratory birds were back in a big way. There were, I don't know, 100,000 snow geese out here, and they all got up at once, and it was you know, about this time in the morning, and the sun just disappeared. You could not see a ray of sunlight shining through those. According to the Nature Conservancy, Emiquan is among the largest floodplain restorations anywhere in the Midwest. Millions of migratory birds pass through the wetlands every year, not to mention the countless number of native plants and fish species that call the flourishing refuge home. But Blodgett says many wetlands aren't so lucky. Illinois has lost nearly 90% of its original wetlands. The majority of Midwestern states, about 50%. Yeah, we, we don't have enough now, and so we can't afford to lose more. But protections for wetlands are up in the air. Last fall, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments for the Sackett versus EPA case, a 14-year legal battle launched from the backyard of an Idaho couple, the Sacketts, seeking to fill their lake-adjacent property with gravel. The EPA stopped them. The case, which has been to the Supreme Court twice now, challenges the federal protections. The Clean Water Act provides to some waters and wetlands under the definition of waters of the United States. Mark Davis directs the Tulane Institute on Water Resources Law and Policy in New Orleans. He calls the Sackett case just the latest in a long line of challenges to the Clean Water Act. At stake is the federal government's jurisdiction over the nation's most valuable natural resource, water. It will mean that there are many you know, important waters and wetlands that are no longer protected by law at all. Davis says larger wetlands, such as Emiquan, will be fine. But it's the smaller, more isolated wetlands and streams that are on the line. They're critical to the overall wetland system, which supports all kinds of wildlife. Although wetlands cover just 6% of the Earth's land surface, it's estimated that 40% of all species rely on them. Davis likes to call them nature's sponge. They hold water, they slow water, and you know they 
do it naturally while providing any number of other benefits, and they don't normally charge you a penny for it. If the court rules in favor of the Sacketts and limits federal agencies' jurisdiction to regulate some of the nation's wetlands, experts say it would leave states to do that work, and that would create a patchwork of protections. Misa Khan with the Mississippi River Network says wetlands don't follow state lines, and the Mississippi River Basin covers over a million square miles and 31 states. Relying on different states to make up different rules ignores how what happens in one part of the Mississippi River has impacts on another. A two-lane study found that 24 states rely on the Clean Water Act to regulate wetlands in their states. That means that they would have limited wetland regulations if the Supreme Court narrows the scope of the Clean Water Act. Yet, at Emiquan, life will go on. Doug Blodgett says scientists have documented about 93% of Illinois' threatened and endangered bird species associated with wetlands at the preserve. And he thinks it could be more. And I'm pretty sure the other 6 or 7% are out there. We just haven't had the right person at the right place at the right time to see them. <laughs> the court is expected to return a decision on the Sackett case sometime early this year. For now, the future for many of the country's wetlands, especially those seemingly isolated from navigable rivers or streams, remains uncertain. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco. That story, a collaboration between Harvest Public Media and the Mississippi River Basin Ag and Water Desk. You may see low-flying helicopters with an even lower sensor dangling from them over central Illinois and the Illinois River Basin. It's all part of a U.S. geological survey learning more about groundwater with cutting-edge technology. Colin Shop spoke with scientists Burke Minsley, Katie Halsey, and Jim Dunker to learn more about the next-generation water-observing system. In the last few decades, there's been some uh, uh, a lot of uh, increases in the technology, advancement in the technology for, for water monitoring. And uh, we're trying to test bed a lot of that instrumentation and bring higher resolution, uh, both spatially and temporally, uh, to uh, water resources questions. So we'll start with you, Jim. What is the Next Generation Water Observing System project? It is a... Uh, 10-year effort program within the USGS uh, nationwide, and they they select uh, a basin roughly every year. Uh, the Illinois River Basin is the third basin to start after the Delaware River Basin, uh, the Upper Colorado, and then the Illinois River Basin. And uh, so we began in 2020, and uh, it is a 10-year effort to bring new technology, next generation technology to monitoring water resources across the basin, uh, both uh, all aspects of the hydrologic cycle. Burke, what is the sensor measuring exactly? Well, the sensor really measures one thing. It's an airborne electromagnetic sensor. Uh, we use that to make maybe lots of different types of interpretations. So it sends a small electromagnetic signal into the earth and depending on the geologic materials in the subsurface, we're able to measure how well um, different materials conduct or don't conduct electricity. So coarse grained sediments like sands and gravels or bedrock don't conduct electricity very well. They look electrically resistive. Shales and clays and saltwater look electrically conductive. They're good conductors. So we're able to map those properties out in the subsurface to depths of about a thousand feet below ground 
And we're able to do that from a helicopter system that's flying at 50 miles an hour. So we can collect a lot of data pretty quickly in the subsurface. And for Katie, is there anything unique or special about the Illinois River Basin that it was chosen for this? One thing unique about the Illinois River Basin is not only its large geographic and population footprint, so the things that we learn about this river basin will impact a great amount of people representative of the watersheds in the area. They're dealing with, um, you know, what their, some of their water quality and water availability interests that they want to better characterize can, um, the learnings that we can gather from the Illinois River Basin can probably be applied to other Midwest water basins. Lots of agriculture and some very dense urban centers. Jim, the press release mentions harmful algal blooms in the Illinois River Basin is one potential focus of this study. What are those and why do they create a risk? So the algae are out there in the, in, the, in lakes, ponds, and rivers uh, naturally. And uh, when things get out of balance and you have uh, excess nutrients, add excess nutrients and, and the, uh, under the right conditions, the algae go through a, a reproductive phase at, at, into a bloom and they become uh, very, uh, 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 what's, what's the term, very, uh, the water turns uh, bright green and, and the algae, algae uh, then become like, uh, can become a problem. And there's a, a threshold, uh, algae blooms are normal part of the, uh, the water resources community, but when it, they get out of control, they uh, can pose a threat. And there's, uh, at certain times, certain species of algae can then uh, release toxins. And then that, so that, then you've gone from a, maybe a nuisance algae bloom to a, a harmful algal, algal bloom. And so those toxins can actually be, you know, are a, a hazard or a risk to uh, human health. Burke, does this project pose any health risks to people in the area? The answer is that you see a pretty low flying helicopter. The helicopter is 200 feet above ground and the instrument is 100 feet beneath that. So it's pretty low. Um, but because of FAA rules, we don't fly directly over houses or populated areas or, you know, dense populations. Um, so we, while you might see it close by, it won't go directly overhead. It tends to fly pretty fast and we have widely spaced flight lines. So you'll see it come and go pretty briefly and might only see it once during the survey. Um, it, because it's low, it, you know, it can startle people when they don't see it coming, but that's about it. Um, the electromagnetic signal that you would feel if you were standing directly beneath it is about equivalent to what you would get if you were standing a foot away from a toaster oven. Scientists Burke Minsley, Katie Halsey, and Jim Dunker telling us about the next generation water observing system. Rock Island has hired someone to help it work with refugees and immigrants who've recently settled in that city. The city council has approved a contract with what is known as a cultural liaison. Herb Trix tells us more. Director of Community and Economic Development Miles Brainerd says at first city staff hired Nyanga Bere Prosper to act as a translator, but then figured out they also needed someone to help them understand cultural differences. It wasn't enough that we just had something you know, taken from Kirundi and put into English or from English into Kirundi, we needed to know the cultural backgrounds of the people who were speaking that language and how they saw certain issues or questions based on their cultural background. 
He calls Prosper a trusted intermediary who helps both groups understand each other. One example is housing and the expectations of the new city residents. We have had folks uh, that we have found living in rented garages uh, here in Rockhound, very tragically. Uh, but they had previously spent 10 years living in a tent in a refugee settlement uh, in some other country. The contract with Prosper runs for six months, and Brainerd hopes Rock Island can find more cultural liaisons like him. Recently, refugees from Afghanistan have started settling in the city. I'm Herb Trix. Northern Illinois University recently joined a pilot program bringing virtual reality to higher ed classrooms. Peter Midland put on a VR headset to learn more about the surprising ways a professor is using virtual reality technology. NIE professor Jason Wall-Alexander pulls a headset over his face, ready to transport to any number of far-flung alien locales, scenic vistas, or even a virtual Oval Office. But he's not going there. He's going to a virtual school gymnasium, particularly the gym in Anderson Hall, where he's an assistant professor in the kinesiology and physical education department, while Alexander teaches students training to be physical education teachers. It's cool to know that it's probably, or it is, the first time being integrated in physical education across the country. He's also the first NIE professor experimenting with virtual reality as part of the university's collaboration with VR education company Victory XR. Alexander Wall just piloted it with a class in the fall and will totally integrate it into his class this spring. NIU is one of 10 pilot institutions working with Victory XR. The partnership started this fall and they built a VR version of NIU's campus, which I got to toss on a MetaQuest headset and visit with Jason Rhodes, Associate Vice Provost for Teaching, Learning, and Digital Education. Hey, Jason, we're, we are, we're here. Can you hear the birds? <laughs> I, I, I hear the birds. We got the library, we got the student center over there. It's not the full campus. There's still lots of open cyberspace, but it includes a virtual version of Alt-Yell Hall, among a few other campus buildings. You can even go inside the student center. Uh, the bowling alley is everything, and everything is in here. It's great, I am halfway yeah. down lane 12. <laughs> The technology is not perfect. It's not photorealistic. It looks more like high-end Nintendo Wii graphics. And as I learned myself, a shaky Wi-Fi connection or network error can boot you from a session. But Celeste Latham, NIU Associate Vice President for Resources and Facilities, says the university is embracing VR's potential. She says they're planning to initiate grants for faculty to transform their curricula, and VR will be a part of that. They also held a faculty workshop in the fall to let faculty try out the technology, and she says they formed an informal group of interested educators, too. Right now, it's just Alexander Wall and his physical education classes. But... Why a PE teacher prep class as NIU's first immersive VR course? Well, for one, he already had some experience using VR with students. And he had ideas of how it could help students prepare for clinical teaching experiences in a real physical gym. In the class, they have to create lesson plans and teach them to their peers in the real Anderson Hall gym. Prior to doing that on campus, our students would go to the VR space in that same space that they're going to teach their peers, lay out the whole lesson. They would record their directions that they would give. They would record some of the feedback that they might give. And then I would watch it and kind of give some feedback on that. For him, it's all about high-quality practice. It's hard for each of his students to gain access to a gym where they can run through a lesson plan, so VR can help provide that space with a little extra creativity. I can go through the item bank and put a T-Rex and manipulate it, like flip it upside down. And you can obviously, like that's like the extreme example. I do it with cones and with baseball bats and stuff. 
Alexander Wall reiterates that nothing beats face-to-face instruction. Full stop. But he says VR has been an effective tool for his students who have used it, and initial findings from other universities support that. And soon, it won't just be for PE instruction. Jason Rhodes says they have an audiology class interested in using VR for a project. Students could explore the anatomy of the inner ear as if they were walking through a massive one. And NIU's nursing programs want to use VR to run simulations so students can practice responding to patient situations and then go back and rewatch how they did. Other educators are already using Victory XR for classes like science and history. A history professor at another university and his students stand on and walk around a virtual map to learn about the Vietnam War, complete with VR replicas of military weapons used in the battle. Behind you over here, you see the Huey helicopter, and I'm going to have you walk Virtual reality isn't necessarily new, but Rhodes says they feel like they're on the cutting edge of its potential for education, especially with the pandemic already opening up people to virtual tools like Zoom. I think everybody wants more flexibility, more engagement with one another, and I think the VR technology just takes it to another level in terms of that sense of engagement. The headsets are still expensive and not without technical difficulties, let alone nausea for some folks. But people like Rode at NIU don't think it's a fad or a gimmick. They think for students, VR technology can actually be transformative. I'm Peter Medlin. There's more to come on statewide. And a reminder, you can always find our episodes. They're available at nprillinois.org. Just look for statewide. Stay right here. Welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. 2021 saw the highest death toll from guns in the U.S. since the early 90s. More than 47,000 people died from gunshot injuries. Kara Anthony with Kaiser Health News went to a cemetery in southern Illinois where groundskeepers work quietly in the shadow of the gun violence epidemic, burying victims, many of them children. A cemetery sitting high up on a hill is called Sunset Gardens of Memory. In one corner, everything is smaller. Picture gravestones the size of a license plate. The cemetery workers use little shovels when it's time to dig a new grave. We're in Babyland. This is Babyland. This is where a lot of babies are buried. That's Johnny Hare, ground supervisor here in Millstadt, across the river from St. Louis. His shift starts just after sunrise, and he doesn't stop moving until sunset. How long have you been working here? Oh, 43 years. (laughs) I just can't leave. Hare says he's more than a groundskeeper. He's a caretaker. When a three-year-old girl was shot and killed in the fall of 2021, Hare made sure she was buried in Babyland. Hare started adding small touches to this part of the cemetery more than 30 years ago to make it feel special. He built a bird bath and brought in angel statues that he painted by hand. I just wanted to put some color in the angel in the baby. The red on their clothes, the brown skin, the black hair, that's, that's all you. doing now. <laughs> Another longtime groundskeeper, William Belt Sr., says it was awkward to walk by the gravestones without acknowledging them. So he greeted each one. What would you say? Excuse me. Coming through, then I got myself together. It was new to me. The entire cemetery is huge, 30 acres. I've been walking this hill my whole life. So it doesn't seem very big. That's William's daughter, Jocelyn Belt. Not just her dad, but her brother and cousin are caretakers here too. In Babyland, parents leave dolls, little race cars, and other toys scattered on the ground. They just do things so differently. 
and how they grieve and how they process the loss. Respect their memory and all that. Gun violence is the number one cause of death for kids in the U.S. When the caretakers dig a grave, they feel that trend in their hands. These men collect data in their own way. They don't necessarily know exactly what happened. They'll always know that something isn't right, health-wise, medically-wise. They know when the gun numbers are up because they'll get a lot of shooting victims and things like that. The caretakers have faced two epidemics, COVID and guns. They did their best to keep up. Johnny Hare says many of the burials were for teens and young people who died from gunshot injuries. One time, it was just every weekend. It was just a steady flow, you know. This one getting killed over here, this one getting killed over there. They fighting against each other, some rival gangs, whatever they were. William Belt Jr., Jocelyn's brother, is also a caretaker. He says the work can take a toll, especially as a father. When it's a kid and they've lived a life and then you see other kids out, like they might have been their friends from daycare or um, school or something, and they grieving, that's just sad. But there's little time to dwell on emotion as the men do their work. Supervisor Johnny Hare says there's always plenty to do. It's a job that got to be done. And this cemetery, no, not, there's nobody else to do it. <laughs> you know, and, you know, you, you just got to keep it, keep it together. I'm Carrie Anthony in Millstadt, Illinois. There is a new legal spat between two parties on the same side of the gun rights issue in Illinois. Eric Stock explains an attorney who won a court ruling against the state's new assault weapons ban has a problem with how a similar lawsuit was filed. State Representative Dan Calkins, a Republican who represents rural parts of McLean County, filed a lawsuit to stop Illinois' new assault weapons ban. A Southern Illinois judge struck down the law a few days earlier, but the ruling applied to fewer than 900 plaintiffs, not the entire state. Culkin says he has about 900 gun owners and firearms dealers joining his lawsuit against Governor J.B. Pritzker, the legislative leaders, and state attorney general. Several who signed up for the lawsuit claim they've been duped. That's according to a new court filing. Calkins asks anyone who joins the lawsuit to contribute $200 to his legal defense fund. That defense fund is actually Calkins's political campaign fund. Dan should have went to law school is what I would tell him, and he didn't. That's Tom DeVore, the attorney who filed the first lawsuit. He called Calkins's actions suspect. I find it odd that a politician would solicit funds from citizens for legal defense of a law like this and then have them submit them to his campaign account. Representative Culkin says he believes his legal defense fund is above board because he's not collecting donations to enrich himself. He's trying to overturn a law he sees as unjust. Well, the, the legal expenses are to benefit all of us. Culkin says he was clear to anyone who wanted to donate, and no one was forced to pay anything to join his lawsuit. Everything that we've been we've sent out has been perfectly clear that and, and where to send the money has been perfectly clear. The lawsuits are similar in content. DeVore argued successfully the ban on assault-style weapons violates equal protection provisions because the ban does not, for example, apply to military members, but it does to retired military. Representative Calkins says he offered to pay DeVore $5,000 for a copy of his legal filings. DeVore says he refused to accept payment and turned the documents over to Calkins' attorneys at no charge. Dan Calkins merely 
plagiarize the legal arguments that I made, and, that, and I'm okay with that. There's one key difference between the two lawsuits. Anyone who joins the Calkins litigation is not listed as a plaintiff. Instead, they are made members of an unincorporated association called the Law-Abiding Gun Owners of Macon County. Culkin says that way, those who are suing can stay secret and would never be called for a deposition. Culkin says anyone who feels uncomfortable with the donations to his campaign fund can get their money back. If they made a donation, which some have, I made it perfectly clear that I would refund any donation made. Culkin's points out Tom DeVore charges his clients $200 each. If it were Mr. DeVore, that'd be $180,000 in his pocket. Culkin's and DeVore clearly agree on the assault weapons ban. Both are Republicans. DeVore recently mounted an unsuccessful bid for Illinois Attorney General. Culkin says he appreciates DeVore's, quote, trailblazing lawsuit that opened the door for others to challenge the assault weapons ban. DeVore filed court papers asking a Macon County judge to order Calkins to return all donations. DeVore scoffs at any suggestion he and Calkins are competing for clients. I can't imagine Dan's looking to take people's money. I don't see him as being that kind of guy, but to say we're competing for the same clients is laughable. I've got enough clients. On the question of whether the donations are legal, that's a gray area. Matt Dietrich is spokesperson for the Illinois State Board of Elections. He says this is uncharted territory. The Illinois Election Code and the Illinois Campaign Finance Act do not specifically allow this situation, and it doesn't, they don't specifically prohibit this use of campaign funds. Dietrich says the State Elections Board would take up the matter if someone files a complaint. I'm Eric Stock. An Illinois appeals court has upheld a lower court ruling against the state's assault weapons ban in the case DeVore filed in Effingham County. Tammy Duckworth's experience as an Iraq War veteran may have played a role in her recent appointment to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but the second-term Democrat says that won't be her focus. She spoke with Eric Stock, says she wants to address other areas of national security. For me, um, I'm an old soldier. I'm all about my nation's strength and my national security. I want to really focus on developing the other aspects of national security beyond the military. I always work on the military issues, but I think our our nation's economy is critically important. One of the things we learned during COVID is how um, uh, vulnerable our supply chain is, especially the manufacturing supply chain. So I would like to use my seat on the committee to really Um, promote economic development, joint ventures, partnerships with other nations to invest in America. Um, Things like, uh, uh, you know, really expanding on the CHIPS Act, the Bipartisan CHIPS Act that we passed last year to attract, um, for example, high-tech chip manufacturing to the United States and in particular to Illinois and the industrial Midwest. With regards to U.S. relations with Ukraine, we are approaching one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. Do you support the increased weapon support the U.S. is providing now, and will the U.S. fund the Ukrainians indefinitely? Well, remember that we're 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 so I yes I support it as a um, because we have a commitment to NATO, right? We are a NATO country, and our NATO allies who are really on the front lines of this, Germany and Poland, stepped up and made the decision to, for example, provide more uh, to uh, main battle tanks uh, to the Ukrainians uh, because the Russians have escalated. Uh, the war and, and and the tools that they're willing to use, and they have become um, much even more brutal than they have been. I mean, they're they're targeting ambulances, 
and they're targeting civilian um, apartment buildings, for example. They're using cruise missiles to uh, take out apartment buildings where civilians are, are living. Um, and so I think it's important for our alliance, the NATO alliance and opposition as a leader within the NATO alliance to support um, those frontline nations that have made this determination that yes, uh, Ukraine needs those main battle tanks. And so um, the first tanks going in are gonna be the German Leopard tanks that um, Poland has. Um, and then of course we will be sending in our um, M1A1 Abrams tank, um, which is a much more sophisticated tank that um, it's gonna take them a little longer time to train up on. Is there a concern that uh, Putin will take this as an escalation? Putin has already escalated. All, all the escalation that's happening is happening because of Putin. He's the one who brought in the mercenaries. He's the one that's taking uh, people that out of his prisons and, and throwing them onto the front lines because he can't get enough conscripts. You know, he he is the one who invaded Ukraine. Um, so if you talk, want to talk about escalation, it's, it's Putin that's escalating the war. Um, and we are helping the Ukrainians defend uh, their freedom. And, and remember that if Putin uh, is successful at annexing the whole country of Ukraine, um, that puts NATO on the front lines. And the first nation on the front lines of that is going to be Poland, which is a NATO ally, which could easily trigger Article 5 of the NATO alliance, which is mutual self-defense. And so um, the best thing we can do to keep the United States from having to go into the war is to support the Ukrainians to fight their war. The killing of uh, Tyree Nichols in a Memphis, a black man at the hands of five black police officers who are now charged with murder, has reignited calls for police reform. Congress talked about this after the George Floyd killing. Talks broke down largely over qualified immunity. In other words, would police officers be held liable in cases of wrongdoing? Will that continue to be a red line for any reforms if these talks fire back up again? Well, I hope that they. I hope that the talks um, uh, resume, and the two senators really leading the discussion on this are Senators uh, Booker and Scott. Um, Booker on the Democratic side, and Senator Scott on the Republican side. And in fact, as part of those talks, um, one of the bills that I've been introducing uh, for a while now. Uh, in fact, the second bill I ever introduced uh, um, as a senator was my Police and Training and Independent Review Act that calls for independent third-party review of any um, involved uh, police-involved shootings or, or deaths. Um, and uh, that, you know, you take it out of the hands of the local investigators, but the independent third-party um, uh, will take a look at, at the incident. Um, so I'm pleased that some of my initiatives have been included in these talks, and I, I really sincerely, sincerely hope that they resume and urge that they resume. Uh, where the Republicans are in terms of qualified immunity, we're going to have to see what they come to the table with. But I absolutely wholeheartedly endorse getting back into negotiations. And let's pass something that would not only uh, provide the needed police reform to also support our police officers. You know, they're the good police officers who are out there trying to do a very difficult job day in, day out. If all of these other reforms included in this measure that seem to have bipartisan support can pass, but immunity is maintained for officers? Will Democrats go along with that? Well, I need to see what those other reforms are. Um, you're you're asking me a hypothetical, and I, I, I really want to say I'm going to vote on something yes or no before I've had a chance to read it. Uh, I can tell you what I'm urging um, uh, Senators Booker and Scott to do is please reopen the negotiations and let's put everything on the table and see what we can get to, because we certainly need some sort of reform. 
Uh, the U.S. is now taking extraordinary measures to avoid default as it reaches its debt limit. Uh, President Biden has said that cuts that Republicans want are not up for negotiation. Are there any cuts that you would support to extend the debt ceiling, or are these two separate issues? They're two separate issues. You, America has to pay her bills. I mean, if, if Republicans, especially the, the the minority of the Republicans in the House, get their way and we default on our on our debt, it's going to affect people who are on Social Security. It's going to affect, you know, you're not going to get your Social Security checks. Our veterans are not going to uh, get their payments for their disability. Uh, Medicare will cease. Um, all of sorts of things will happen, not not the least of which is the, you know, the good credit of the United States. So we have to pay our debts. We have to pay, you know, when you when you got a credit card bill, you got to pay that credit card bill. And then if you want to have a conversation about not spending so much and, and, and running up that credit card debt, I'm happy to have that conversation. But you don't default. You, you don't just say, you know what, I'm not going to pay my mortgage this month. Well, one budget discussion that the Republicans want to have as we continue with U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth is raising the retirement age to 70 as one way to limit government spending on entitlement programs. Given that people are living much longer now, is that something Congress will eventually look at? Again, I am happy to look at anything that involves talking about what our budget needs to be. Some of the places where we can actually cut our spending has to do with uh, freebies we give to large corporations, the freebies we give to the wealthiest, the freebies we give to pharmaceutical companies, you know, uh, to make sure that uh, we, we lower some of those costs first. There are lots of things that we can look at, and we certainly should look at all of them. Um, uh, but I don't think that we should be going after Social Security and Medicare as the first thing. It's just, I don't think, the smart move to make in terms of making sure we take care of working families across this country. Uh, one Republican from Central Illinois, Darren LaHood, has said that he's exploring legislation to consider tougher penalties for holding on to classified documents. Uh, the last two presidents and uh, the previous vice president have had these documents in, in their possession. Are the laws regarding highly sensitive info like this too lax, in your view? Well, I, I, anytime the classified material is found where it shouldn't be, there's a problem. Uh, but there's, let, let me make it clear that there's there is a very diff, a big difference between where uh, former Vice President Pence and, and President Biden are um, with the documents that have been found and voluntarily turned back in and initiated themselves versus President Trump, who was actively hiding classified documents from the National Archives. He had ordered people to put pack them into boxes and to hide the boxes from investigators. Uh, so there's a big difference between those two, between what Mike Pence, um, you know, finding uh, uh, documents in his offices versus Donald Trump moving classified documents from location to location to try to evade uh, um, the, the federal government and, and the National Archives who said, hey, you're not supposed to keep those. That said, I fully support having the independent investigation that the Justice Department has mounted into this situation. And I look forward to seeing what they are going to, what the findings are and what the uh, the recommendations will be. That's U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth, and she spoke with Eric Stock. We have more ahead on Statewide. Stay right here. You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Following the death of Tyree Nichols, we revisit an interview from last year. It involves a professor who directed the creation of a database tracking deadly force use by police in Illinois. The University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign's Scott Althouse led interdisciplinary experts working within the Klein Center for Advanced Social Research 
to create a more authoritative way to track incidents than has been done by the state police. Between 2017, when data was first collected, and 2020, the state agency reported 146 uses of lethal force by law enforcement, while in the same period, the Spotlight Project found more than double that number. Reporter Maureen McKinney interviewed Althaus about the project and what its future looks like. So the Spotlight Project came out of a 2017 summit involving national police organization leaders and advocacy group leaders and academic researchers to try to fill an important gap in the United States. And that gap is that we have no authoritative registry of police uses of lethal force across the country. And in coming together, we emerged with a vision of how what would become the Spotlight Project would help communities and help police helping communities by empowering them to hold police accountable, by um, assessing when and where and how often police have used lethal force, and also identifying the racial and ethnic characteristics of civilians that are used, that are involved in those uses of force, but also helping police by um, assisting them in maintaining accurate records of their uses of lethal force that can be trusted by all sides, and showing both when change is needed and when reforms are working. Will it be used for future data finding, or is it stagnant? This initial release of the Spotlight dashboard is filling out the backstory from 2014 to 2021 across eight years, every county in the state, um, how many uses of lethal force incidents by police were there. And that doesn't take us forward into the present or into the future. So as the project develops, we are going to be building new capabilities to add additional layers of data, but also to be able to update this data set as time moves forward so that residents across the state of Illinois will have uh, an updating resource to help them understand what is going on with police uses of lethal force in their areas. How rare is such a database? There is no authoritative national database of police uses of lethal force. And this project was pulled together to fill that gap for the state of Illinois initially, and then eventually the entire country. The Illinois State Police are required by law to document police uses of lethal force, and they have been doing so since 2017. Um, Their data run through 2020, and that Illinois State Police data reporting system documents 146 uses of lethal force by police in that um, four-year period. For the same time period, the Spotlight Illinois Project finds 345 uses of lethal force by police. That's over twice as many incidents than are part of the official state of Illinois record. And as we go forward in time from there and backward as well, we're confident that we're finding many more of these incidents and documenting them in credible ways than we've ever had any kind of registry system be able to provide in the past. Why do you think there's such a discrepancy? So policing agencies are tasked with a wide range of, of task elements, and most of them involve um, putting police officers on streets. And many of them are under-resourced for producing data and reports that might be um, requested by state and federal authorities. So we see not only an under-reporting 
among policing agencies for police uses of lethal force, but we see the same kind of underreporting in crime report data that you would think policing agencies would have a strong incentive to publish because it, it helps to communicate the value that they're creating for their communities. But there's a similar dynamic that just under-resourcing of policing agencies combined with the voluntary nature of these reporting systems in most cases and then the fact that in Illinois alone we have over 700 law enforcement agencies to keep track of, it makes it a very difficult challenge to try to pull that information together in real time. And I'm sure the Illinois State Police are doing what they can with their available resources, but even the FBI has not been able to pull together a credible national database using the same sort of methods. And that's where the Spotlight Project approaches the problem from a different vantage point. And we start with news reports of these local incidents and document some basic information about where these happened, who were the people involved, and so on, from news reports and other credible administrative records to be able to pull together a much larger picture than these other sources have been able to provide. Tell me why this is important. It is a somber task to document these incidents across the state. Um, Today is just the first step in in a longer series of efforts to try to create a fuller information picture on what is happening around the state. And our research has just begun. We're moving towards a more complete story, but we, we still have a ways to go. Today, we know that there were 694 confirmed police uses of lethal force in Illinois statewide from 2014 through 2021. That involved 734 civilians. We didn't know that yesterday. And as we move forward, um, we need to invite community members, researchers, policing organizations, advocacy groups to take our data and to work with it and help us to understand an even more complete picture of what's going on across the state. How will the future of the program be developed? Uh, when might we see national data? So the funding sources for the Spotlight Illinois project come from a combination of campus resources at the University of Illinois, um, private donations and funds that have been set up for the Klein Center for Advanced Social Research at the University of Illinois campus, as well as funding from the Office of the Vice Chancellor for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion call to action to address racism and social injustice program that was launched by uh, the University of Illinois campus two years ago to begin developing a better understanding of these factors around the state and around the the country. So those are the sources of funding for, for our project. And part of the challenge for us, why we've been working for five years on this, is it's difficult to pull together the funding resources to create the complete picture that we want. And we're still working forward to trying to um, find a sustainable path to increasing the amount of information that we can provide about these important incidents. It's obvious, probably, but why is this going to improve accountability and is is that part of the reason for the project so up to now there are groups within communities across the state who have a very clear understanding of how many police uses of lethal force there have been in recent years but many of these communities have residents that don't have a clear understanding of how police have exercised their authority in local areas. So our dashboard system helps communities to better understand when 
uses of lethal force have happened, how frequently, how they've developed over time, so they can have a, a clear picture of whether they see a problem that needs to be addressed or they see their local policing agencies um, appearing to exercise their responsibilities in appropriate ways. And one of the things that we found through this project that of the 102 counties in the state of Illinois, 40% of them had had no incidents of police uses of lethal force at all in the eight-year period that we covered. That's not something that would be easy to pick up from national news coverage about, um, you know, the latest incident that that uh, that draws national attention. We just don't know what's going on at the local level and around the state. So this information is meant to provide um, to fill that gap, to provide communities and residents within communities with actionable information that's highly credible that will allow them to start conversations or to continue conversations or to bring new groups into conversations um, with a shared understanding of what has been going on in their local communities. And that's the start for the, for the Spotlight Illinois project. One of the important questions that are on the minds of many residents in the state of Illinois is what are the racial or ethnic characteristics of civilians that are involved in these police uses of lethal force? And we've documented those as well. We've identified 734 civilians across the state who have been involved in these incidents, and for about two-thirds of them, almost two-thirds, uh, we've been able to credibly uh, ascribe racial or ethnic group characteristics based on an image of the person and uh, the name of the person. And of that, um, of that set of roughly two-thirds of individuals that we've been able to, um, to categorize or to classify in this way, we find that of civilians involved in police uses of lethal force over the last eight years in Illinois, 61% have been black, 21% have been white, 17% have been Hispanic or Latino, 1% Asian, and we have not yet found um, a civilian that we could clearly identify as American Indian or Alaska Native. So that is information that we have not had access to in the state at this scale. And we're also hoping that as residents of Illinois use the Spotlight dashboard and can look up the information for their own county on what the racial and ethnic breakdown is for civilians that have been involved in these, in these incidents, that they can better understand the scope and scale of some of the challenges that are being talked about nationally, talked about locally, but often without a shared base of common information. That's U of I professor Scott Althaus. He oversaw creation of a database that tracks the use of deadly force by police in Illinois. Well, despite the freezing temperatures, hundreds took a plunge into Lake Michigan last weekend, all in the name of charity. Michael Puente brings us this chilly story. For Bob Hack, it was his eighth time. For his friend Terry Magnuson, it was his second. And neither had much strategy on how to handle it, it being the bone-chilling waters of Lake Michigan. For me, I just wanted to know why. You're about to go in the water? I am. Why? It's a great charity. It's, they deserve the support. They don't get a lot of support from the city, and they need they need the support. And these families need the support. But why? Because it's a, this is what we do, right? We're crazy. But, but why? <laughs> Try it. You'll like it. Hack says there's no preparing for what's about to hit you. You just dive in. But his friend Magnuson says he was able to prepare. Cold showers is the way to get a month before this really cold showers. So you do got to prepare. You get, you get acclimated to yeah. that temperature. Yeah. That's a lot colder than the shower, but, yeah. but. See, so it's wind. in a minute, and like Bob said, it's a great charity. The charity is the Chicago Polar Bear Club. In the early 2000s, Brian Marshall got the idea to jump in the lake 
to raise funds for a loved one. Well, I found out one of my cousins needed a double lung transplant. And I come from a really big family, so our family raised money for my cousin and her husband. Let's come back. And we figured if we know somebody, you must know somebody. So we just decided to help other people since they helped us. Whether to raise money or just do something extreme, folks from all ages and walks of life stripped down to nearly nothing and took the plunge. Okay, some wore Viking outfits, tutus, or even a shark suit, but most were nearly naked standing in the cold and snow at Oak Street Beach. Chris Prouty just moved from LA and wore matching pink Speedos along with his friend. Oh, we planned this at least like two months ago. We were like, we're gonna do this. Everyone thought we were crazy. We are like, nope, we're, we're absolutely gonna do this. <laughs> well, what do you do to mentally prepare for this? Um, I don't think there really is a set plan. <laughs> I think you just kind of accept it and just run. Norna Jewett took her first plunge last year, but the sun was out. On this day, it's gray with brisk winds and blowing snow. So this is very different. We had a beautiful sun over the, the Hancock building, and today you can barely see it. Did the sun make a difference? Absolutely. Oh, it did? <laughs> yes. All right. We'll find out. As the stroke of noon gets closer, many just grinned and bared it as the high waves crashed against the frozen sandy shore. Plenty of EMS folks were standing by. Everything is done in a safe and orderly fashion. Then the moment arrives. Let's go! At this point, some are still second-guessing their decision. Oh, my God! I, why did I do this? I'm so irrational! Why did I do this? I don't know. Make no mistake, no one is spending much time in the water. It's jump in, get out. Everything happens in less than 30 seconds to a minute. Some were feeling invigorated by the plunge, and there were many whole families who participated, like Cynthia Egas, who came out with her parents. We did it for the charity. Honestly, it's an amazing experience. I think everyone should do it once in their lifetime. Her mother, Beatriz Yunda, a native of Ecuador, says the feeling you get from jumping into a freezing cold lake lasts for a while. You know, it's a feeling hard to describe makes you happy for two, you know, keeps you happy for two weeks. And that is very nice. It's adrenaline 100%. Organizers say more than 500 people took the plunge and raised over $60,000, the most ever in its 22-year history. Michael Puente, WBEZ News. That's all the time we have for Statewide. Thanks for being with us and join us next week. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. All of our episodes are available at the website nprillinois.org. Just look for Statewide. And also you can listen to the weekly podcast through the NPR One app. I'm Sean Crawford and Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations. Thank you.